Hello, my name is Dominique Drew, and this is The Art of Attraction, the premier podcast to elevate your relationships, your life, and yourself. I'm your host, Dominique Drew, an intuitive, a spiritual guide, and a seasoned expert in men's relationship coaching. I've used the methods in this podcast to completely transform my own life and relationships, and now, high performers in every industry hire me to help them do the same. Here, you will learn how to solve the issues in your inner world which keep you from real fulfillment, deep intimacy, freedom, and authenticity. Welcome to the next stage of your evolution. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Art of Attraction with Domini Drew. I am your host, Domini herself, in the queen hostess seat, and I am joined today by Nick Winkleman. I am super excited to introduce you guys to Nick. This is going to be an incredible interview here. Uh, So if you are familiar with this space, you know that this podcast is a place where we dive underneath the behavioral, beneath the strategic, and into really what it is that runs our system. So just below the psyche, how it is that we step into who we actually are, what it is that's behind that process, both the art of that, the science of that, and in particular, how it relates to people who have got a fair amount of success in one way or another. We're not, to be clear, looking at how these people have become successful in order to become successful ourselves. Instead, we're looking at what it is that happens in their systems once they have reached this point. So my specialty is around people who have a certain amount of success or influence and what is really going on in their psyches, in their personal lives, what is behind the facade, which is somewhat inevitably created by the uh, act of being put on this kind of pedestal or stage and being seen by a lot of people, which even evolutionarily is something that we're not exactly built for. Just the level of globalization in today's world exposes us to numbers of people that we're not really physically, at least, evolved to handle. So we're put in some really interesting situations. So today I'm joined by Nick Winkleman, who I'm super excited to talk to. Nick is the head of athletics and science in uh, for the Irish rugby team. And I'm thrilled to have you on here. I can't wait to dive in. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Dominique, it's my pleasure. This I've been looking forward to a lot. I know you've got a killer schedule, so I so, so appreciate you taking the time. I am a bit of a rugby geek, and I played in college. I played. I never said I was good, but I played, (laughs) and I had a wonderful time, and I grew up with this kind of love of rugby, which is somewhat out of place in the States, although, as we were talking about before we hit record, uh, it's starting to, to gain some legs, as you said. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what your position is on the team and take it from there. Yeah. So like you said, for those stateside listening, they might not be as familiar with how rugby is structured. But within Irish rugby, we have the national team, which is made up of the men's team and the women's team for the sport that's played with 15 players aside. But then if anyone's followed the Olympics, and this is actually becoming more popular in the States, especially the Las Vegas tournament and the one this past weekend in LA. uh, So there's two different versions of the game. So we have all these national teams, but obviously those players need to come from somewhere. And so we also then have four professional teams that play in their own league. And so Irish rugby sits across all of those entities. So in fact, in my position, 
There's around 35 strength conditioning coaches and sports scientists across those five entities, if you will. And each of those entities is made up of multiple teams or or layers. So, I mean, really from a 16-year-old all the way up to a national team player like Johnny Sexton, my area is meant to support the athletic performance and development alongside of our medical and nutrition and sports psych colleagues, all in terms of the rugby and the rugby performance. So it's quite a wide reaching role for both supporting players as well as staff. Interesting. So did you say that there are now teams that have 11 players? No, seven aside. So rugby sevens, and then obviously rugby is known for its international game being 15 aside. Okay, great. So this is very interesting. So 35 coaches and scientists, you said, of those 35, how many have to do with the players, let's say, inner world, mental health or mindset or personal life, anything like that? So as you know, Domini, any coach, whether it be the rugby coach or the strength conditioning coach, we're, we're constantly interacting and interfacing with the player's mind for better or for worse. But what's great about Irish rugby is we've just recently hired a head of psychology. And so we will now have an individual who's in a similar role to myself, but their remit is to directly evolve the both clinical and sports psychology support across the entire country of rugby players. And so that will and is a a dedicated space within what we do. But I mean, coaching in general is something that interfaces with the psychology of the player and trying to understand how to meet an individual where they're at and how to guide them through a program, whether it's a strength program, a fitness program, or otherwise, is all central to what we do as coaches. And it's something front of mind in our own topics around professional development with that group. Gotcha. So even just within coaching in your particular topics, there's a way in which you kind of go through the whole human as well. And now there's something dedicated. Absolutely. I'm on both fronts, 100%. Great. I'm thrilled to hear that, that they're bringing in uh, somebody in psych. That's a big deal. It is. You know, I mean, I think sports psychology has been around for quite a while, but the formalization and integration of it across sport, unfortunately, is still evolving. Fortunately now for us, we're finally taking the action to make sure it has a dedicated seat at the table and players and coaches absolutely see the necessity of it. So if a team doesn't provide it, um, they'll usually seek it out on their own. So it's great that we now have it integrated in the environment of their support. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. That's really a big deal. I wonder about, I don't know much about the recruitment process within rugby. In NFL, it starts quite young. Not that obviously I know that people, even kids will play rugby quite young in schools, but as far as the recruitment are really the intensity starts very young in the Mm. NFL. So there are people that, friends of mine actually, who are starting programs that that go into colleges or into high schools that really teach you the inner game because there's so much distortion that happens so young because they're given so much pressure and then so much money if they succeed at such a young age with no education around it, no sort of here's how to actually live your life. Is it kind of similar with rugby or is it kind of a whole different game? It's very different in rugby. And then obviously it's a far smaller sport within the country, let alone the financial backing of rugby isn't quite at the level, let's say, and thus pressure and numbers as the NFL. It doesn't make the development in terms of the training and preparation for the sport 
let's say, any less demanding. At, at that, it would be very much so on par. But for those, especially stateside, who might not be familiar, you know, players start young recreationally with kind of touch rugby without the tackling. And inevitably, as they mature into it, they bring in the physical aspects of the game, no different than American football. But for us, players will start being identified in high school. So they can be identified and put on a development contract or a development path, if you will, from 16, 17, and 18. Now, this this coincides right with their rugby at school. So this isn't necessarily taking them out, but it provides, if you will, additional support. And so the layers of rugby basically go from pathway, which bring you up to around a, a 19 to 20-year-old. Then if you're good enough uh, within that, you would get what's called an academy contract. And that's going to be, let's say, for 19 to 22, 23. Basically, kids now at this point are in college or just starting to finish college. And then if you're good enough there, you have usually a three-year window to showcase yourself within an academy, then you will get promoted and contracted on senior team. As far as Americans are concerned, you've made the professional team at this point. And we have four professional rugby teams within um, Irish rugby. And then ultimately, usually within a few years, if you're good enough there, then you might get an invite to play for the national team. And really, rugby is an international game. And the international side of it is more mature or longer standing in a historical context than the professional side. And so the ultimate goal is to wear your country's color and to play in the major competitions for which we have three major windows of international competition a year. And this year, especially, is very important for the, the 15s, the men's 15s, because it's a World Cup year. And that is, that's the equivalent in rugby to the Super Bowl, if you will. And so that's happening this summer. Brilliant. So as you work with players, let's say once they're on a, a professional team, once they're sort of in your mm. in your circle, what do you tend to find? What do they tend to struggle with? Well, I think like a lot of individuals, they have to balance a lot of different things. I mean, they usually come mm. into the game as a young individual in college and they can put all their focus on the sport and their studies, which I'll be honest, at first can be a challenge in itself, learning how to find the balance there. Yeah, I can imagine. But inevitably, if someone has an eight to 10 year career, they usually throughout the process have a family, possibly have kids. And so I think with all things, trying to balance this sport with the social side can be a challenge. But these individuals, and again, this is a contrast from my experience in the NFL, most of the individuals are, they're very well educated, they are supported at a young age around life skills. I mean, our pathway players with our nutritionists get cooking classes. So they actually mm -hmm. learn how to cook for themselves and various other social facts that might not necessarily always be connected with the sport. But we realize the better they are off the field, the better they're going to be on the field and that they can put their mind and their focus to their work when they're in work. And so I'd like to think from what I've observed, these individuals are very well-rounded. But just thinking back to a lot of the players I worked with in the NFL, going to the NFL Combine, I mean, they had everybody coming out of the woodworks looking to be part of their potential payday from a, a contracting perspective. It's just very different within rugby and within Irish rugby. They don't have the same, I'd say, financial and social pressures. Whether it be cultural or sport, it's hard to tease out, but the pressure is certainly less in that regard, Dominique. 
Do you think that's primarily around the finances? Like if you brought NFL down, let's say you paid the NFL people what you were paying Irish rugby yeah. players, do you think it would be fairly similar? Yeah, I think a lot of the pressure I see on those young individuals, because they would say as much, was on, on the financial side and how to manage their money, what to do with it once they had their money, how to invest yeah, it and huge. use it correctly. I just yeah. saw that again and again and again. And in credit to the NFL and the Players Association, they actually do a fantastic job talking about the pitfalls, bringing people in who overcome or succumbed to the pitfalls. And even then, many of the rookies in the NFL still have challenges with it. And so it's not for lack of effort, but I believe the pressures in that regard are on a far different scale than what a much smaller, let's say, financial and cultural ecosystem that is in front of, let's say, players in Irish rugby. Hmm. Why are the rugby players paid less? Because rugby is really obviously much bigger than the NFL as far as on a global level. Yeah. And it's watched massively, but... It is. I mean, I'd be the wrong person to ask in that regard. I don't Mm. know exactly why. I mean, you're definitely correct. In terms of the history of the sport, it's far older than American football. I mean, even if you're an American football fan, you've seen words like scrum or scrummaging, things of that nature... Well, those all come out of rugby. And so rugby was the first, if you will, team contact sport. So there's been a lot of evolution from it to inevitably give us both the Canadian Football League as well as the NFL. Hmm. But what a lot of people might not know, and so maybe part of the answer to your question is just a matter of how long it's been professional. The NFL, while a younger sport, has been professional for much longer. Um, I don't know the exact day, but I can say with rugby, rugby only became professionalized, i.e. people are getting paid for it rather than it just being a club and country amateur sport in the mid-90s. No way. Yeah, yeah. So from a professional perspective, players have only been paid for maybe just about 30 years. And so in terms of the evolution of the sport from amateur to professional, that's one of the answers. And yes, while it is an international sport, It doesn't have a huge international appeal yet within America, probably most notably because it has another chief competing contact sport, i.e. being the NFL, which is, you know, one of the nation's game alongside baseball. And so when you look at just the competing marketplace for which that's where a lot of the finances come from, how many people are buying the jerseys, how many people are coming to the games, you know, who is going to spend money to engage with the sport I still believe that's just evolving and farther behind because of the professionalization only happened in the mid-90s. But again, these are educated guests at best. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. This just sort of occurred to me as you were speaking. So you've been in this field for a long time. What's the total? When did you start? So I've been in the athletic performance field for 20 years, and I've been working for Irish Rugby actually seven years as of uh, next month. Gotcha. So over those 20 years, because let's rope in uh, NFL as well, because the interest is really, I mean, obviously personal interest is in rugby, but <laughs> the interest here is around people who are at the, at the top of their game, right? I use the yes. word success, but really it's peak performance. Yes. And the work that, that I sort of focus around is that elevated performance coaching, right? Bringing your entire system into alignment such that you can, you know, there's nothing holding you back or you're not splitting yourself in different directions and thus slowing your, your progress to your goal. What have you seen in the field as far as how performance is impacted by, let's say, their mindset? So I think back to when I was a fan. You know, I grew up 
in the mid nineties watching the NFL, if we just use that as an example. And I remember, I'll never forget. I saw an ESPN piece on Jerry Rice. And so for San Francisco 49er fans, especially those during that time, they'll certainly remember him as being one of the best wide receivers ever to play the game. And I'll never forget a huge part of that ESPN piece showed all of his work ethic off the field. And there was one B-roll of him sprinting up this huge hill um, somewhere during his training. And this was outside of his own football training. And so I remember seeing that and seeing that, that work ethic, even when you're at the top of your game, training like you're not. Mm. Even when you're at the top of your game, training like you're not. And then I remember over the time, you know, think of NBA, I saw similar ESPN coverage, let's say, of Michael Jordan. And obviously with The Last Dance, the most recent Netflix, we got that the showcase of how hard he likes to work. And so you see that across sport. And then I think back to just about 200 NFL athletes that I supported And it's important that I supported them at a critical juncture in their life. You know, they were coming to me right out of college because their agency had a spot with us, I was at Exos, to prepare the combine. And so they were just converting, if you will, from this amateur to the professional. And as I looked at these individuals, I now, you know, with hindsight of over seven years since I supported that group, I see who made the Pro Bowl. I see who've been in Super Bowls. I see there who who are still in the NFL versus those that are not. And with hindsight, nothing betrayed. It was the players that were the first out to the session. The players that spent that much more time in the cold plunge or thinking about their recovery. It was the players that seemed to take more of an active vested interest in their own development. They didn't look to cut corners. If anything, they were looking to do more. They were oftentimes the player that you might have to tell to pull back rather than to push on. And I would say that has not betrayed my intuition when I've looked at elite military, for which is the second biggest population I've worked with, and now elite rugby. So across those three cohorts, obviously all primarily in team sport and contact team sports, but I don't think it's different across any other. They're the first in, right, last out mentality. They take an active interest in themselves. They expect that no one will do it for them. And they tend to have this humility that ensures that they never allow their success, which may be by chance or choice, to ever get in front of their work ethic. That Mm. is the one, if you will, common thread across all of them. And their mindset ultimately is one of doggedness. Nothing is going to stop them. So failure doesn't bother them. Being broken down doesn't bother them. If anything, in a lot of cases, um, they have an ironic relationship with those things that it feeds them. You know, you hear, I think back to my favorite quote from Michael Jordan, right? He says, I've missed over 9,000 shots, right? I've lost X hundred number of games, 26 times. I've been given the opportunity to make the game winning shot and I have lost. I have failed over and over again. And that's why I succeed. If there was a bumper sticker quote for what I believe makes the great, the greatest, that's it. And do you find that the people with that dogged mindset, it's a great way of saying it, is there a way in which they, because that can also lead to burnout, sure can. right? Sort of overdoing. What have you seen in that mindset that uh, allows the push to move forward instead of spin the wheels and burn out? There's good energy management in these individuals. I've also seen the elite <laughs> athlete who is just constantly high energy. Coach, what do you want me to do? What do I need to do? And they're just always up here. 
And they have the similar trait in that they seem to have a positive mindset. They're the first in, they're the last out. But there doesn't seem to be an ebb and flow. There doesn't seem to be a balance. When they're recovering, they're not recovering because they're still switched Mm. on. They're still, how can I do this better? How can I do this better? When maybe sometimes what's best for them is not trying to be better, but just relax, to just reflect, to just switch off. And so I think categorically, it's the individuals that struggle to switch off. They almost have this angst and this panic about their growth and development, which tells me that possibly their relationship with growth is one out of fear that what if it stops? Whereas I think the greats, they're not fearful of losing that growth. That seems to be part of them. And they actually recognize knowingly or not that they'll get in their own way if they don't take some time off, if they don't take their foot off the gas pedal. So I think equanimity, I think balance would be a term I would also throw in for those that are elite. They know it's a marathon, right? They know it's not a sprint. And the best way to observe this is what happens when they get injured. Because the individual that's constantly go, 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 but now they get injured and now they can't. Now they just do need to relax. Now they do need to be patient. What happens to them? Those individuals can get very frustrated. They can burn themselves out. And oftentimes they can try to get back sooner than they should, ultimately not respecting what their body needed to heal, recover, and go back, hopefully, in a better position than not. And are there people that break the rules of what we're talking about now, Dominique? Yes. But what I'm, what I think we're trying to get at here is a bit of the golden rule around what's one set of behaviors, observations, and mindsets that will more systematically lead to success than not. And I think that's what we're pointing to here. Yeah, it's really interesting that tendency of of not wanting to stop of the of the go, go, go. I have a lot of clients who are like that. It's it's a lot easier, isn't it? Especially for high achievers, which is primarily the type of people we're talking about. For high achievers, achieving is easy. They're good at that. That's their core quality, let's say. Not easy and that doesn't take a lot of effort, but easy in the sense that they are happy to do that effort. And then yes. there's the point of stopping. And a lot of them will refuse to stop or be afraid, actually, of stopping because then you have to drop it and actually feel what's underneath all the busyness, all the go, 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 all the movement. Yes. And there's a realness there that can scare the shit out of some folks. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And so I think elite athletes are very good at acceptance. They're good at accepting the failure, feeling the failure, and then learning and growing from it. If everything that an athlete does contributes kind of like cost-benefit analysis in that, okay, if it's positive, it adds to me versus if it's negative, it takes away from me. And then I got to fight back and do X number of positives to overcome that failure that I felt, whether it be a training or otherwise. I kind of believe that that zero-sum game approach burns people out. And it's as if they're running away from something. Whereas the great athletes will learn from the failure and they won't even see it as failure. They'll see it as feedback. And if they start to see themselves failing and failing and failing, maybe they'll step back and say, what's going on here? How can I grow even from this place of apparent weakness? And so nothing ever knocks them back because they have a different relationship with failure. They have a different relationship with setback. In the sports psychology realm, and Domini, you may have come across this, one of the chief factors related to people let's either having success under pressure 
or succumbing and choking under pressure is their relationship when it comes to challenge. Do they see challenge as opportunity or do they see it as threat? You know, so people that see challenge as threat tend to choke or underperform under pressure far more often than people that see it as a challenge. Because every one of us knows there may be a challenge too far for us on the day. It doesn't mean that challenge is too far for us in a lifetime or in a few months' time, but it could be too much for us today. And so individuals that see it as challenge as an opportunity see growth no matter what. There's no way to fail there. Because if they went up against something bigger than what they've ever gone up against, that's still for them an understanding that I've gotten better here. Even though I didn't quite succeed, I've learned how I can get closer to succeeding next time. And oftentimes, the athlete can't necessarily verbalize this explicitly, but it is this felt being, right, as you're saying, Dominique, underneath it all that is driving them forward. And so it really is this acceptance that as long as I in a very high level of vulnerability, gave everything I had, and I'm willing to face myself in the mirror, knowing that the worst case scenario is I learn and get better next time, those individuals for me tend to have the greatest level of success. Yeah. Yeah. That matches my experience as well. There's actually a TED Talk on what you're talking about around stress. uh, And she talks about a Harvard study that was done with people who, like uh, physical illness and death, like the death rate in people over a certain number of years and how they perceived stress. And the people yes. who were stre- had experienced a high level of stress and thought stress was bad died more often, died younger, had more health issues. The ones who, who had a high level of stress and saw it as good had no increase whatsoever in health issues or yeah. death rate. A hundred percent. So if I can just offer a story here, in the traditional Buddhist text, so from the Buddha himself, there's this concept around two darts. And so it goes something like this. If someone was to throw a dart at you and hit you with it, right, there's just the physical raw pain of the dart itself. But what most humans do is they then add a feeler to the feeling. They add a experiencer to the experience. And rather than just noticing, oh, there's pain, there's, oh, I have pain, or why me? Why did I get hit by a dart? Oh, what if I had not been here? Then the dart would have never gotten to me. And what we do is we then take on a second dart. We add suffering, unnecessary at that, on top of what is just the raw, uncomfortable signal of pain in a sense place. And so in life, we see this all the time. A circumstance occurs. You can label it good or bad. As you know, we don't have to. It could just be. But once we start to label it good and bad, then we create all this space for additional suffering. Why did this happen? Oh, if I had only done this. Oh, if they had only changed this. Or what about the ref? Or, oh, I'll never be able to succeed. And so rather than looking at something square like the pain in the arm just for what it is, no better, no worse, not good, not bad, It's just an inherent sense. It's an inherent experience. We add the labels and the judgment. And in doing that, especially if it's in the negative direction, we add pain and suffering on top of suffering. 
but half of which is unnecessary. It doesn't need to be there. And so this is ultimately what I mean by, in, in Buddhist teachings, it's meant by acceptance. It's just accept it as is without judgment. Let it be, let it flow, and then keep moving forward. And there's one other story here related to this that I think even conveys it better. And the story goes like this. There's two monks walking along a dirt road, and they come to water in the middle of this dirt road, and they see a woman standing there. And one of the monks says to the woman, let me help you across. And so he helps the woman across by holding her and putting her on the other side. It's a very old, traditional Buddhist story. Then they're walking down the road, and the other monk says, oh my goodness, you spoke to a woman. You were not meant to do that. And he said, oh, brother, you are the only one still holding her. And what he meant by that is he engaged in an act in the moment, and then the second the moment was over, he moved on. But the other person continued to think about it, continued to reflect on it, continued to hold it in mind. That happens to so many people, let alone our athletes. As the experience happens, tends to be one of negative, and we hold it in our mind, and we allow it to continue to fog, taint, or negatively influence us moving forward. Again, taking on that second dart. And so it's easier said than done, but the ability to engage in the moment or to just simply live within and have acceptance of experience as is and say, what action can I take next to be more skillful, to be better in the future? That's what I believe great athletes do. Thank you so much for sharing those. That was absolutely brilliant. And I think you're exactly right. This is why I'm so drawn to the high performers, to the high achievers, to people who are striving for the top of their game is because they're surrounded by people like you. They don't need to be on a whatever spiritual path, whatever the heck that means. They don't need to be diving into it for the sake of diving into it. Like, I'm going to wake up and I just want to grow today. I'm going to do self-growth. You know, I do that, but I'm a kind of a weirdo. Sure. <laughs> you know, a lot of people do it just because they like, they want to solve their problem, right? But these people, they're interested in performing at their best. Bestness is what interests them, right? So they're surrounded by people like you without needing to be trained in the spiritual world or whatever, you know, it looks like from a more official way, you're dropping that shit in. You know, somebody yeah. comes to you and he's, man, I was off my game today and all this stuff's been going on with my girlfriend. You go, man, you got to let that shit go. Right. So they're getting this like ultimate wisdom, which is extraordinarily true. And they're getting it from all over because that's what helps you be your best. The fact of the matter is all of you needs to show up in the field in order to really maximize your your impact and potential, right? Absolutely. I mean, we conventionally refer to this as meeting a person where they're at and yeah. trying to communicate with them in a way such that they can understand the path they're on and continue to move move forward on it. I think the key is, though, for us, it's a matter of recognizing that we cannot take the steps for the athlete. Despite how much we might try as coaches, the athlete is the one that needs to put uh, one foot in front of the other. So I think it's been phrased, you know, guiding by the side. You know, the, the way I like to put it is this. I imagine myself sitting on uh, one side of a river as a coach, and the athlete is on the other side of that river. And on the side of the athlete is all the materials to build the bridge. Hmm. But the athlete themselves is going to be the one who needs to build the bridge. All I can provide is guidance, instruction, and frames of reference to help build clarity and understanding such that they know how to build that proverbial bridge in the direction of travel, such that they can come to physically understand what I already know, but in the way they can express it in their body. 
I might know on how I want them to play a sport, how I want them to move, but my challenge is getting literally ideas out of my head and into their body. And the only way I do that is through effective communication, effective guidance, effective storytelling. I'm not a puppeteer. I'm not literally able to force feed learning and growth and mindset on them. I can only ever offer, but it's up to them to see what sticks. And it's up to them to build the bridge to cross into an embodied sense of what I know. Otherwise, there'd be no need for a coach. And so for me, that's critical. And one of my favorite quotes by John Wooden says, you know, I have not taught until they've learned. And so I think that's what coaching is. It's knowing how to coach in such a way that the athlete can own the change, whether it be a productive mindset or a productive movement, it's still in the direction of change in a positive direction. Yeah. That must be a really fascinating journey for you as well. How to communicate not only to each different person, each different sport, first of all, and then each Mm. different person, and then each different fucking day, right? Because how they show up is a little bit different each time, isn't it? A hundred percent. But if you see with your eyes and listen with your ears, you know, far more than you speak with your mouth, then all the information you need to know how to communicate with someone is right in front of you. And so if I say something and they squish up their nose and shrink their eyes and tilt their head, that probably tells me they do not understand. (laughs) Or if they're constantly looking away, they're not even paying attention, Hmm. right? If their body language is slumped, and I go right into talking about what we're going to do that day before asking them, hey, how are you feeling today? Are you okay? What's going on? Right? If I can't read the room, if I can't read the responses to what I'm saying, then fundamentally, yes, I'm operating with two hands tied behind my back. I'm operating in a sensory blind manner. And so for me, by chance or choice, I've always been very attuned to how my athletes responded to me verbally and non-verbally. And even though I didn't always know what to do, I knew I needed to do something. And I think great coaches or inevitably coaches that become great are highly attuned to their athletes' responses. They're very clear in their values. They're clear in their understanding of the sport. But most importantly, they're very clear in how the athlete is responding to their instruction, their practice, their practice design. And through that response, they know how to drive in one direction because things are going well or pivot or nudge or move in another direction because an athlete or athletes are not responding well. But if you don't look up and listen up, you're never going to know when to shut up (laughs) and when to engage them at the right level. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there trends that you see as far as how people who come into this level of high performance tend to feel about themselves? Perception of self? Are there trends... No, I can't say that there's trends, but I think there's probably a threshold of confidence and self-belief. You know, sometimes I refer to it as healthy (laughs) self-delusion when it comes to elite athletes. It is, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. To an athlete, I believe you've got to believe you can do it before you actualize it. Otherwise, you won't put the work when nobody is looking needed to showcase it when they are. And so I think there's probably a cocktail of self-belief, confidence, healthy delusion that all works together to to drive an athlete uh, forward into believing that something is possible until it actualizes. Beautiful. Man, I appreciate that. That was super clear. It gives us a great idea of what's really going on for these athletes and what you what you really do to help them. Is there anything else you want to add for us here? The only thing I would say is 
elite performers, their persistence needs to be matched by patience. Because persistence without patience for me oftentimes can turn into chaos. And people can start to punish themselves for not progressing as fast as they think they should. But maybe the reality is they think they should be progressing faster than they should. And that's the problem, not the actual pace with which they're progressing. So persistence and patience, I think, is critical. And you know, when people say, what's your best advice? Just keep going. Just keep going. And make sure you look up and you listen up because the world around you will tell you if the direction of travel you're going in is skillful or unskillful. And if you do that and you keep going, you'll get where you're supposed to go. Yeah. Yeah, example there, as you said, the uh, having an idea in your head that you should be further along or should be somewhere that you're not, we slide there into yeah. unhealthy delusion, right? Exactly. Decision in exactly. your mind, one that doesn't doesn't serve you. Interesting how the same action in your mind can lead to totally different results and consequences depending on whether or not it serves you or doesn't. A hundred percent. As much as we want things to be, you know, just black and white, we know that they're not in life. And I think that's a huge part of also being skillful in your path is embracing the gray. Yeah. There's the acceptance again, right? Exactly. Exactly. Brilliant. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on, talking to me about this. This is really, really powerful. I think the my audience is going to get massive amounts of value. I really appreciate your input. Thank you. No, thank you for having me, Dominique. So we're going to wrap up this episode for today. Thank you so much for joining me, everyone. And I will see you on the next one. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Art of Attraction. This is Dominique Drew signing off and reminding you that if you love this podcast, please hit that subscribe button, rate us five stars, and most importantly, share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. See you next time.